Well, it's a joy to actually be back with you to bring the word to you again. I thought I was only preaching in July, but Pastor Bobby asked me to preach for a few more Sundays here in August, so I'll be preaching the first three Sundays in August. Today's message is going to be a follow-up, I think, an appropriate follow-up to last week's message where we are talking about despair, hopelessness, depression from 1 Kings 19. I now want to talk about the subject of joy. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, but please pray with me before we turn to the text. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and that you are the God of joy. And you, or rather, we enter into your joy because of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray as we look at this wonderful passage of Scripture today that we would remember and behold and experience again the joy of the Lord in an abundant way. Help me to be able to explain this word. Work in the hearts of your people to encourage them, to convict them, to transform them, because that's what you, that's what you do by your Spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in the book of Psalms today, but before we go there, I'd actually like to draw your attention to the book of Job. In the beginning of the book of Job, do you remember that Satan issues a certain challenge to God over a righteous man named Job? This challenge is recorded in Job 1, verses 9 to 11. I'll read it to you. Job 1, 9 to 11. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his, possession have, his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Satan extended this challenge to involve Job's person also in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Satan says to God, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. What was Satan asserting to God? Essentially this. God, you hold up this righteous man, Job, as an example of faith. But the only reason he really follows after you is because you give him all the earthly treasures that he wants. You give him health, you give him wealth, you give him protection. If you take these things away, Job won't want you anymore. He'll curse you to your face. Face it, God. You're just the cosmic genie to Job. If you don't keep granting him his wishes, he'll abandon you. It's a pretty brazen assertion from the devil, is it not? But if you read on in the book of Job you find the results of God doing exactly as Satan suggests. God, through Satan, takes away all the earthly blessings that Job has. But the result was not as Satan predicted. Instead of turning away from God, abandoning God, cursing God, what does Job do? He blesses God. He worships God. And continues to seek his hope in God. Oh, to be sure, the Job experienced incredible sorrow great pain and suffering. He struggled to make sense with what God was doing in his life. And yet Job nevertheless testified, well, listen to what he says in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. See, Job was giving a testimony that totally contradicted Satan's assertion. God, 
is not merely valuable for the earthly treasures he gives his people. Actually, God is most valuable simply for himself. God is valuable in himself. If you lose all the treasures of this world, if God turns your life upside down, all your relationships are sundered, nobody wants to be your friend or help anymore, if you still have God, you have everything. Everything that really matters. This is one of the great truths of the scriptures. God is our joy. There are, I'll say it this way, all of us, all of us in the world are looking for joy. Everybody wants a joy that lasts, a joy that cannot be broken by circumstances. But the people of the world, they just continue to look for that joy in a broken and uncertain world, which is impossible to find. True joy is only found in the unchanging God whose kingdom is not yet of this world. Let me ask you this morning, where is your ultimate source of joy? Are you like the world, seeking for joy in circumstances? Or do you have a steadfast joy that stays with you no matter the circumstances? Have you discovered the bottomless fountain of joy that is the Lord himself for his people? Now for those of us in Christ, I know it can be so easily to forget the joy that we have in God and to start looking for it in our circumstances and in the things of the world. So I think it will be helpful for us to be instructed by a particular prayer song that we have in the scriptures. A song that will reorient our hearts and strengthen our faith. That's what I want to do with you this morning. So please take your Bibles now and go to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. The title of my message today is Yahweh, the center of joy. Yahweh, the center of joy. If you're not familiar with the book of Psalms, these are a Holy Spirit-inspired collection of prayer songs and prayer poems that were used in Israel. They were written both to be instructive and as worship. You would actually sing these very songs and pray these very songs. And this book is unique in its character, whereas other books are divided by chapter and you need to pay attention to which chapter came before and what chapter came afterwards to appreciate the full context. Here, the book is not organized by chapter, but by individual song. Each psalm is, its, is a self-contained work, largely self-contained in meaning. So, we're not looking at the 16th chapter of the Psalms, but rather the 16th Psalm. And we're going to look at the entire Psalm today. Verses 1 to 11, Psalm 16. I'll read it now. It says, A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, that is Yahweh, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh, who has counseled me. 
Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. This is a great psalm. Notice right away the title information given for this psalm. If you are using the King James Version, you won't even see this because it's not included. But the, the title, which you see at the, at the top of this psalm, it actually is where the psalm begins. It's part of the original biblical text. Verse 1 in Hebrew does not begin with, Preserve me, O God, but rather, a miktam of David. And this little title description is quite significant. Because not only do we learn that this psalm is written by David, who is David, sweet psalmist of Israel, that shepherd who became a king and was given a special covenant from God. He was a true lover of God, full of zeal for the Lord, faith in the Lord. We learn that this is a psalm from David, but also it is a miktam of David. What's a miktam, you ask? Well, miktam appears to be a technical musical term, which we don't really know what it means today. Hebrews understood it. We don't really know. It could mean something like, inscription, or silent. Poignantly, though, miktam is a term that is only used for six psalms in the Bible. There's this psalm, Psalm 16, and then Psalms 56 to 60. We don't have time to look at those titles or those texts right now, but if you do, you'll notice there's a certain pattern. If you look at the title information for Psalms 56 to 60, you see that David is in danger. He's running for his life. And when you look at the information given in those psalms, it's all a crisis situation. So even though we don't know exactly what miktam means, it seems to be associated with danger and difficulty. A time of crisis. Now when we look at Psalm 16, it says it's a miktam, but we just read through it. We don't see any elaboration on the particular dangers that David faced. Nevertheless, the miktam title suggests that this is a psalm written in the context of difficulty, in the context of danger, which is even more significant because the psalm has such a joyful tone. He almost wouldn't even anticipate that David would be facing danger because he seems so glad. I think that's telling us something. The fundamental framework for this psalm is about joy in the midst of danger. Or joy in the midst of trouble and difficulty. And isn't that what we all want? The Lord's sweet psalmist is going to show us that today. David presents the one true God, Yahweh, as the center of joy for believers at all times. And more specifically, in this psalm, David gives five reasons why believers can have joy in God amid trouble. Five reasons for believers to rejoice in Yahweh amid difficulty. I'll give them to you just in outline form. Number one, Yahweh is our exclusive refuge. Number two, Yahweh is our communal delight. Number three, Yahweh is our joyful inheritance. Number four, Yahweh is our steadfast guide. Number five, Yahweh is our future hope. 
Now, these reasons are profound. These are not necessarily exhaustive. We could add other things from other scriptures to these, but these are the ones that David wants us to pay attention to in this psalm. And let's take a closer look at each one of these reasons. The first reason to rejoice in Yahweh amid difficulty appears in verses 1 to 2. That reason is, number one, Yahweh is our exclusive refuge. Verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to Yahweh, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. Notice in verse 1 here that David makes a request. It's actually the only request in the entire psalm. He says, Preserve me, O God. Watch over me. Keep me. Guard me. There are dangers and difficulties all around me, God. I don't even know when the next one's going to invade my life. I need you to protect me. I need you to preserve me. And notice the reason David gives for making this request. Also in the first line of verse 1, he says, For I take refuge in you. I don't know if that strikes you as odd, as a reason. God, give me refuge because I seek refuge in you. They seem strange. But David is actually appealing, he's simply appealing to God's own character and God's own promises. As you see throughout the scriptures, even in the Old Testament, even in the law of Moses, God proclaims himself to be the strength, the protection, the deliverer of his people, Israel. God thus calls upon his people to honor him by whenever they face trouble, seeking refuge in him. So David, like a poor kingdom subject who's uh, living in the land and there's some marauding armies coming, he runs to his Lord's castle, knocks on the gate and says, My Lord, please open. You proclaim that I should run to you when danger comes. So here I am. Please now preserve me. Keep me safe. Vindicate your word to me. That's all David's doing. And we can see why David would be so confident in seeking the Lord as his refuge because of the names that he uses for God here. Notice we have three different names. David first refers to God as God, which is the Hebrew term El. This is a name that carries with it the idea of power. God, you are my powerful one. You are El. And he also, next, refers to God as the Lord, in all capital letters in our Bibles. This is the traditional way that English Bibles indicate the covenant name of God, Yahweh. You notice usually when I read the Bible, I just replace it with the term Yahweh because that's what it originally was in Hebrew. But this is the special name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh is a name that literally means something like He is. And it is a reference to what God announced to Moses back at the revelation of the burning bush at Mount Sinai. You remember in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 16, Moses says, Who am I to say is sending me to the people of Israel to deliver them? And God says, tell them, I am who I am. Tell them I am. The God of their fathers has sent you to them. This declaration of I am who I am, it is, it is a word that emphasizes God's eternality, his self-sufficiency, his independence, his unchanging nature, but then something else. Probably the most significant aspect of the name Yahweh is that it was only explained to the people of Israel. 
This is something God reminds Moses of in Exodus chapter 6. He says, I used, or he doesn't say this, but it's clear as we go in the scriptures, I've used this name Yahweh with other people, but I never explained it to anybody but you. To you, Moses, and to the people of Israel. Thus, the name Yahweh was a name that connoted Israel's special relationship with God, that he is their covenant God. He is the one who has contracted, due to just his own faithful nature, to love and be faithful to Israel. Yahweh is a special name that represents the intimacy of God with his chosen ones. And David refers to God as Yahweh. That's the second name. And then there's a third name. He says, you are my Lord. Lord is the third title, not the same as Yahweh. My Lord is actually the term Adonai, which maybe some of you have heard before. It means my Lord, my Master. It emphasizes God's sovereignty and his right over what is his. Now, do you see how these would all play into David's appeal to God for preservation? You are El. You are the powerful God who can protect me. You are Yahweh, the covenant God who is faithful, loving, will keep his oath to protect. And you are Adonai, my sovereign God, who rightfully should protect what is his own. And now notice the last phrase David uses in verse 2. He says, I have no good besides you. Pretty extravagant statement. David is saying, God, I know that there is nowhere else really that I can go except you. In this danger and this trouble, there's nowhere else to go. I'm not going to find any true good outside of you because you are the source of all good. You are good. All good is in you. Can you see where the joy comes from in all this? When we see trouble, David directs us to rejoice in the God who himself is our sure refuge. The only refuge, really. Being a Christian will not exempt you from trouble. In fact, your troubles may increase because you follow the Lord. But we can rejoice that we have a place of safety in any trouble, and that place is our God, our Lord, our God, Yahweh himself. God will not only bring us through the trials in his perfect way and in his perfect timing, but he will also give peace to our hearts through the trial as we remember his power, his faithful love, and his sovereignty. If we look for refuge in another source, what will we find? disappointment, ultimately, and the disapproval of God, because he said, no, you're to come to me. I'm the only Savior and refuge. If we seek our ultimate refuge in God, we will find secure joy. Is that what you do? What is your source of comfort and safety in trouble? And you this morning testify with David that you rejoice in God as your only refuge. There's a second reason we can rejoice in God amid difficulty. That appears in verses 3 to 4. Take a look at those. Our second reason is 
God is our communal delight. Verse 3. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. In these two verses, David describes how God's people themselves become a way to rejoice in God. Notice the lofty title David uses for God's people in verse 3. He calls them saints, literally holy ones, and also majestic ones, those of great excellence and glory. You may say, oh wait, I should also add, and then David finishes it by saying, in them, in these people, is all my delight. Really? These imperfect people around me, they are worthy of such descriptions? Actually, you see the same sentiment expressed in the New Testament. This idea of finding joy in God's people. Look at the letters of the apostles to individual churches and to individual people. What do you find? All the time they're giving thanks to God for those people. They talk about how they're encouraged by those people, how they even rejoice over them. It's the same thing for David here. And really, it should be the same thing for us. You may say, but, but how? How am I to find joy in God over my brethren? At least two main ways. First, by remembering who they really are before God. They are the fellowship of the beloved of God. For David and Israel, he saw in his brethren, brethren a people graciously chosen by God as God's special possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, as the Torah says. We experience similar realities in our Christian fellowship. Actually, that same description is used of believers, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But even greater is our fellowship than was David's with his people because we, because we know the Lord Jesus Christ, have become spiritually attached to him and have become members in the same spiritual body. We are one in Christ. God has gathered a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and station to be his beloved bride. We are that together. And we ought to delight in those that have been made God's people in this way. Think about what they really are before God with you. But then there's another way. This delight in the people of God is magnified as we see our brethren actually living as the people of God, manifesting transformed lives. David says he rejoices in the saints. And that's not just because they have that position before God, God has designated them as set apart, but because they actually live that way. They are characteristically a holy people. David loves to see, to behold the true remnant of Yahweh following after God, loving his law, worshiping Yahweh in the tabernacle. He wants to be a part of that people, but he has no joy in false brethren. And we see this in verse 4, don't we? These are people who claim to be Israelites, but they barter for or run after, the Hebrew verb there could be translated either way, run after another God, maybe in replacement of Yahweh or in addition to Yahweh, because these are both problems in Israel. You had apostasy, people who turned away from God, 
and syncretism, people who tried to serve God alongside something else. And you can appreciate that this would seem the logical thing to do when you're in danger. Oh, yeah, I'll pray to Yahweh, but just in case he doesn't come through, I'll pray to Baal as well. I'll do what he wants. David knew that this was something that he would see even among the people of Israel, but he doesn't want to be part of that group. David points out actually in verse 4 that these persons who are looking for multiplied joy or multiplied strength by turning to other gods, what do they actually find? Multiplied pain, multiplied sorrow. David wants no part of their sinful and hypocritical worship. I won't pour out their drink offerings of blood. That could be a reference to barbaric and evil worship practices, perhaps even child sacrifice. Or it may just be that hypocritical worship that they would even offer to Yahweh while their hands were essentially bloodied by sin. He says, I don't want to participate with them. I don't even want to mention the names of these turncoats in an honorable way. Nor do I want to mention the names of their gods. But for those who walk in truth before Yahweh, David loves to remember them, to fellowship with them, serve with them, worship with them. There should be a similar joy in us when we consider how God is with and transforming our brethren. I mean, you've experienced this, haven't you? Seeing Others in this church, believers in your life that you know, walking with God, wanting to make his name great, telling others in the world about him. You see that and you say, wow, praise God. That's encouraging to me. Now it's true. Your brethren are also imperfect. And it's true that there are even false brethren, those who claim the name of Christ but don't actually walk after the Lord. And yeah, we can't take joy in those things Even Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 5, we're not even to associate with someone who calls himself a brother and yet walks in unrepentant sin. But as to the imperfections of our brothers and sisters, we can't focus on that. We should instead be focusing on how God does enable these people still to walk generally in holiness. Yes, they have imperfections, so do you. Yes, they're struggling with different sins, so are you. And yet God is at work. He's transforming them just as he's transforming you. Focus more fundamentally on your camaraderie in the Lord, that genuine worship and love of God that you share. If you do that, you'll find joy in your brethren. So brethren, do you rejoice over your family in the church, imperfect as they are? Nevertheless, designated holy ones, even majestic ones by God, and being transformed into that? Do you rejoice also in your brothers and sisters across the country and around the world who have been called into the bride of Christ as you have? Though we face many troubles in this life, we can rejoice in the holy brotherhood, the family of our fellow servants and fellow soldiers in the Lord. So let's do that. Instead of just focusing on our differences, our different opinions, our failures, and then just complaining about each other. It's not what David does, and he's showing us the way. We see a third reason for us to rejoice in God amid difficulty, and that's in verses 5 to 6. Our third reason is 
Yahweh is our joyful inheritance. Look at verse 5. David continues, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Notice the language of these two verses is all about inheritance. That is, land inheritance. Now, land and land inheritance is not as important to us today in our society. We don't rely on land as much as individuals. But for the Hebrews, land and land inheritance was a really big deal. First of all, land represented your livelihood. You literally sustained yourself and your family through your land by raising the crops on it or by raising the animals on it. Land was very important. But also, land represented the grace and favor of God. What was the great uh, promise that God gave to Israel through Moses when they were coming out of Egypt? I'm taking you to a land. I'm giving you a land. And I'm giving a land for each one of you individual families. Each one of you will have a divinely determined plot from me as a mark of my grace to you. To have no land inheritance or to lose the inheritance that God gave you is often seen as a mark of God's curse. No land? But look at what David says here about his inheritance. He says, Yahweh, not a particular plot of ground, is his inheritance. His good inheritance. Yahweh, David says, also is my cup, meaning he is the source of my life. He is the source of abundance, not my land. David, as an Israelite and as a future king, it's unclear whether he wrote this before he was king or afterwards. I probably would suggest it was before. But as an Israelite and as a future king, David did have an actual land inheritance. But... David also lived a life on the run. He was running from Saul, who was trying to kill him unjustly. He had other enemies that he had to deal with, which meant that David often couldn't access his land. He couldn't use his land. It was lost to David. But was David depressed about this? No. Why? Because he saw Yahweh as his true inheritance. No land, no problem. Got Yahweh. I don't need land to sustain me when I have God Himself holding up my lot. In fact, David says the lines, that is the, the measuring ropes that would determine the property boundaries of individual families, he says, These lines have fallen in pleasant places. I've lucked out in my inheritance. My heritage in Yahweh is more lovely and more security-giving than the greatest and most productive landscape. How can David say these things? Well, it's a little bit of what we've already seen. Because David sees how good God is just in himself, in his character, in his nature. Everything God does for David in his life, even through David's troubles, David sees as just right for David. David testifies, essentially, God himself and whatever God has determined to give me is perfect. 
It is a joyful inheritance to me. Now, friends, do you realize that the essence of life does not consist in just experiencing the good of this world, experiencing good circumstances? What is the essence of life? Where is true life to be found? It is found in knowing God. Which is what David David experienced. David knew. And the rest of the scriptures say the same thing. Do they not? Let me quote a few verses to you. Jeremiah 9.23 Jeremiah 9.23 Thus says Yahweh, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. Or Jesus' words himself in John 17.3. John 17.3. I like to quote this verse a lot. It's like my favorite verse. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. One more. Philippians. Philippians 3.8. Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So brethren, do not despair when life goes south for you because you have a perfect inheritance that can never be threatened. The Lord himself. You have an inheritance that is more perfect, more enjoyable, more secure than any earthly one. You who are nobody, let's face it, that's who we all are. We're worse than nobodies. We're rebels against God. We've experienced the mercy of God to be made to know the greatest the most lovable, the most glorious being in the universe. And he, not only do we know him, but he has covenanted with us to be our faithful and loving God. I will be your God, you will be my people. That's what he said to each one of us. And is that not a cause for great joy amid trouble? So we rejoice in Yahweh as our exclusive refuge. We rejoice in Yahweh as our communal delight. We rejoice in Yahweh as our joyful inheritance. Now number four, another reason we rejoice in Yahweh amid troubles is verses seven to eight. Yahweh is our steadfast guide. Verse seven. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I set Yahweh continually before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Interesting. David says in verse 7 that he will bless Yahweh, meaning he will praise Yahweh and ask for a blessing to come down upon Yahweh and upon Yahweh's name. And why? Well, here it's because Yahweh has counseled David. He has advised David. He has shown David the way to go. How did God do this for David? How was he giving David counsel? If you read the scriptures, it's true. David did receive some unique counsel, unique guidance. He had certain prophets who ministered to him on behalf of God. Uh, other supernatural things happened with God and David. And those are 
elements of revelation that are no longer in operation today. But mainly, David received his counsel and guidance from what source? God's word. God's word. And isn't this what David and the other psalmists are rejoicing about throughout the psalms? Psalm 119, 105, God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Go to Psalm 19 also, talks about how wonderful the word is, even superior to general revelation of creation. And can't your heart testify the same? Isn't it so good that when we face this difficult life, this confusing life, this mysterious life, that God has given us the light from the counsel of his word to show us the way to walk. And God's truth becomes a source of continual meditation for David. Notice he says in in the second part of verse 7, night by night David is going over God's truth in his mind. It's interesting, the, uh, the word for instructs here, my mind instructs, it actually carries the idea of discipline, even chastisement. So as David thinks on God's truth, he not only meditates on the goodness of it, but he reproves himself for the times that he has not believed it and not followed after it. Body and soul, get in line. This is the way of God. David wants to make sure his way is the Lord's way. And why is that? Because David knows that God's way is so good that it will lead him on the level path. Through troubles, yes, but it will nevertheless be a stable way. Because notice what David says in verse 8. He says, I have set Yahweh before me continually. Now, what does he mean by that? It doesn't mean he's literally set Yahweh before him like Yahweh were some idol that he could just place before him in his hand or set a statue up and just keep walking towards that. That's not the idea. Rather, the idea is that David has set Yahweh in the center of his mind in a a way before his eyes. I want to be continually seeking the Lord and what pleases him. David, in a sense, has got his mind's eye on the prize. I'm going to continue walking after Yahweh. I'm setting him before me. And David knows that when Yahweh is before his eyes, Yahweh is also at his right hand. That's what he says. Because he is at my right hand, the second part of verse 8. Remember in the Hebrew mind, the right hand is the symbol of strength and support. Most people are right-handed back then, even as today, and so it's the symbol of strength. So David sees God like a knowledgeable and strong guide who not only shows him the way forward, but also walks beside him at his right hand to support him and to strengthen him. With Yahweh before me and beside me, David says, I know that I will not be shaken. That is, I will not be so destabilized by the circumstances of life that I stagger and fall irrevocably. Life still will have its difficulties. I will be pushed. I will be pulled by various trials and temptations. But with God guiding me by his good word and with his strong hand upholding me, I won't lose balance. He will keep my way secure. That's David's testimony. 
Now, isn't this another great reason for us to rejoice in God amid difficulty? Because we have the same God and the same guide. Everyone in this world is looking for guidance, wisdom, the right way to walk, but nobody can agree. Philosophers say one thing, scientists say another thing, celebrities say a third thing. And in recent memory, has any time been more chaotic or uncertain than now? We've got riots over racism, we've got COVID recommendations and guidelines and opinions. We've got constant shenanigans going on in relation to the upcoming election, let alone our own personal problems. How am I supposed to handle this particular person who's causing me trouble? How am I supposed to face this particular trial? How do I know what to do about this issue? But we've got a guide. We've got somebody to show us the way. Not just a probably good way, but an absolutely sure way. A way that is tested and given by the Lord himself. God's word is the counsel that is sufficient for all of life and godliness. Isn't that what the other scriptures say? Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. It says the same thing. Whatever we face in life, God has given us the counsel to face it. And then he upholds us with his right hand. That's a cause for joy. And the world doesn't have that. You have that if you're in Christ. The path may still be hard, but we have our covenant God to be our steadfast guide the whole way. There's a fifth and final reason for us to rejoice in God amid trouble, and that's in our last set of verses, verses 9 to 11. Number five, Yahweh is our future hope. Look at verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Notice the word therefore in verse 9. David is going to explain a beautiful consequence of having Yahweh be your steadfast guide. Verse 9, we see multiple terms referring to David's whole being rejoicing in God. My heart and my inner man is glad. My glory, which is a little bit uncertain what he means by that, maybe refers to David's self as created in the image of God. My glory rejoices. And even my flesh, that is my body, rests securely. All of me is so happy and secure in God. Why all this confidence, David? Verses 10 to 11 explain. Because God will provide for me both everlasting life and everlasting joy. David says to God, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, which is just the Old Testament term for the grave, the realm of the dead. And it's not specific about heaven, hell, or anything like that. It just means the place where, uh, the state of being dead. You will not leave me in the grave, nor will you allow me, your holy one, or we could translate it, your faithful one, to undergo decay. Literally, see the pit. See the source of corruption. The place of decomposition. Instead, what will you do, God? You will make known to me the path of life. The path of life is actually a term that appears in Proverbs. It's not only the way to life, but it is also life in itself. 
David essentially says, God, you will show me the path of life and cause me to walk in it all the way into your presence. For you are the source of life, and all life is in you. And what will it mean to be in Yahweh's presence, to dwell where the Lord's face is? David says, fullness of joy. Literally, satiation of joys. It's actually plural. Overabundance of joy. Joys to the max. Because God's right hand, there it is again, in your right hand, he says in the last line of verse 11, God's right hand, which is the symbol of strength and support, it will hold and it will supply pleasures and happinesses for God's people in an everlasting way. Joys that will endure forever. Now that is a confident hope. Did you hear what David just said? Talk about the joy amid trouble. David clearly articulates his confidence that God will not only preserve his life on earth until David's time is complete, but that God will also one day bring David, soul and body, into everlasting life. And this everlasting life will not merely consist of an ongoing existence, but a, a life of joyful fellowship with God and the enjoyment of all the delights that God has laid up for his people. That is amazing. Now, brethren, David's hope should be your same hope if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Your body and your soul can rejoice because God also will lead you on the path of life that culminates in ultimate life with him. He will not leave you in the grave, but he will send his angels to take your soul to him when you die until that day when he raises your body and causes you to live in a new glorified body in the kingdom of God, in the new heavens and the new earth, in the presence of God forever. That is yours if you know Christ. Such a promise then. Why should we be so caught up and destabilized by the problems of life? We have this to look forward to. We are the people of God who are going to be with God. No matter how hard life gets, no matter how much we suffer for Christ and the gospel, there is abundant life waiting for us in the end. An abundant life which we also taste right now. To be a Christian is to be the most joyful kind of person on the earth, or at least it ought to be. Make no mistake, God is no cosmic killjoy. He's not the hall monitor who's just there to verify you're not having any fun or any joy in your life. It's not true. God is the author of joy and of pleasure and of happiness. He is those things in himself, so of course he will delight to give those things to his people forever. Our future hope in God should cause us to have great joy amid troubles. Or perhaps you notice something a little odd about verse 10, especially in light of our scripture reading. Didn't David's body, in fact, go into the grave and both see and know the pit's corruption? I mean, yeah, I get David's articulating his hope of the resurrection here, but 
He said he wouldn't see corruption, and he did. What gives? Ah, the answer is what Peter said from our scripture reading in Acts chapter 2. Something very unique about David as a speaker of God. See, David was a prophet. And he not only spoke of himself, but he also spoke of his descendant to come. And David could do this because David, as God's chosen king, he received a special covenant from God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in that covenant, God said, I will not withdraw my loving kindness from you or your seed forever. In fact, I will cause you and your seed, that is the line of descent, to reign over Israel in an everlasting way. In fact, your reign, the reign of your seed, will extend to the entire earth. This was the Davidic covenant, something very special to David. This means that when David wrote particular psalms about himself as the anointed one, he didn't just write about himself, but he wrote about his seed. He speaks not only about himself as God's anointed, but the greater anointed one, whom we call the Messiah. That's what anointed one means. It means Messiah, or even Christ. This coming seed would be what David was in a magnified way. And also, this coming seed would fulfill certain things that David spoke about, but that David couldn't fulfill himself. And who is this greater Davidic seed? The greater David, as he's sometimes called? This is the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Peter said in Acts 2 on Pentecost. Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah the descendant of David, the descendant of Jesse, the promised Messiah of Israel. Peter points out in Acts 2 that there's something about this psalm that shows it's not ultimately about David. It's about Jesus. Because only Jesus fulfills what David says in verse 10. Son of God, son of man, Jesus lived a perfect life, perfectly righteous life in obedience to God's law. But Jesus was taken by sinful men and was nailed to a cross for crimes he never committed. They intended to kill Jesus, but this was part of the perfect plan. This was fulfilling the perfect plan of God to provide a substitute, a saving substitute for his people, who would bear the weight of their sin, bear the wrath due their sin on himself, and pay it all off. This is what Jesus did by shedding his blood at Calvary and by suffering the entire wrath of God for his people. Jesus was then placed in a tomb, placed in the grave. But in three days, when Jesus' body should have begun to decay, what happened? It did not. It was raised. He rose from the dead. God's Holy One did not see corruption at all, just as David prophesied he would not. Instead, what did Jesus' body and soul see? Resurrection, life, and exaltation. Jesus arose again from the grave. He appeared to his disciples and taught them for 40 days. And then he ascended back into heaven until his time of return, just as the Gospels testify. Thus, Psalm 16 is not just a testimony of David and his joy in the Lord and his future hope, it is actually also a prophecy of the greater David's life, ministry, and even his testimony. 
The words articulated in this psalm, they were David's, and yet they were Christ's in a greater way. Do you see that everything this psalm talks about, Jesus fulfilled in a greater fashion than David did? I mean, we just go through the points again. Jesus rejoiced in God as his exclusive refuge. Don't we see that throughout his ministry? He faces all these threats and he says, my father will take care of me. I don't have to be worried. Jesus rejoiced in God as his communal delight. Think about the way Jesus spoke about his brethren. I'm not ashamed to be called their brother. I love them unto the end. Number three, Jesus rejoiced in God as his joyful inheritance. It was for the joy set before him, the scriptures say, that he endured the cross and despised the shame. He found joy in simply fulfilling whatever the Father had for him, whether it's fulfilling scripture, whether it's praying in communion to God, or whether it's doing the Father's will. He was the itinerant preacher. He testified himself, I have no place to lay my head permanently except on my Father's breast. Number four, Jesus rejoiced in God as a steadfast guide. Actually, I already began to talk about this. He continually sought the Lord in prayer. He knew the scriptures, sought to fulfill the scriptures. And number five, Jesus rejoiced in God as his future hope, which was plainly vindicated in his resurrection and, and exaltation. So what does this all mean for us? It not only means that Jesus is the greater example of Psalm 16 than David was, but also Jesus is the means that all of these things come true for us. We only have refuge, community, inheritance, guidance, hope, because of Christ, through Christ. You don't have any of the things of this psalm if you don't have Christ. He's the way they come to you because they first were true of him. He is the ultimate reason that we can rejoice in God. He, in fact, is the God in whom we rejoice. He is Yahweh God. If you have Jesus, brothers and sisters, and everything we've talked about today is yours, it is your joy amid trouble, but if you don't have Jesus, none of it's yours. So the great question, the great issue is, do you have Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you have Yahweh as the center of your joy? Jesus says, you only come to know him by repentance and faith. Repent means that you turn away from your sinful way, that way that's even described in this psalm as the way that only brings multiplied sorrow. Don't look for another God, another refuge outside of God. Don't try to work your way into heaven or think that some ritual is going to bring you there. You've got to turn from all that. And you instead are to believe, to have faith in the Lord, faith in Yahweh. He is the only master. He has the sovereignty over your life. You need to give it over to him. He is the only refuge. He is the only savior. It is only Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection that is going to bring you to God. There's no way you can add to it. There's no way you can replace it. You want to repent and believe. And what is the result? It's what this psalm says. It's everlasting life. It's everlasting joy, and it is God himself who is these things to us. If you will repent and believe, you get God, and that's the greatest thing. Brethren, our world is looking for joy in all the wrong places, but God has shown us where true joy is. It is only found in Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ.
Because we know that. Let us live that way. Let us be a people of joy amid troubles. For then we will stand out as witnesses to our world. And we can show them the hope that they too can have if they will just turn to the Lord. He can be their joy. We want to be that kind of witness. Let's pray.